freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello, culminators. Ron Coleman has promised, has threatened. Here's the story. I've got Joe Kent with me. I'm going to give you a little picture of what we're talking about. It was yesterday when I wrote that on October 7th. I guess it was Wednesday. YouTube nuked the account of our guy. I'm not going to shove all his titles and appellations down his throat again. He's getting tired of hearing it. Of course, he is running for office. Uh, Joe Kent, they took him off. I don't know why. I don't know how they justified it. He always struck me as a kind of a good guy. Of course, I'm a little biased, I'll admit. Joe, how are you? What's going on? Oh, well, thanks for having me back on. My pleasure. You were one of my first live streams. And I'm not sure that I'm necessarily all that much better at it now. But this is our first live stream on Rumble, which is only awesome. only rolled out live streaming fairly recently. Um, oh, that's great. For those of you who are concerned, yes, Ron Coleman's nose is a little bit red and he is wearing a wrist brace. You should have seen the other guy. We'll leave it at that. Uh, Joe, what happened? What happened last week? You know, I wish I had some great story to tell you that I had this in particular, like spicy hot take that, <laughs> you know, that's going to just wow everybody. But I, I don't have that. I don't know if I actually uh, penetrated with any kind of great take that got me canceled. Um, you know, I, I've kind of been pretty consistent talking about breaking up big tech, but the policy based way that we would break up big tech. I was on Jack Murphy's podcast talking about or Jack Murphy's live stream, actually talking about just that very topic. It was kind of policy based, though. So I'm not sure if that was the the particular incident that got me uh, nuked from YouTube. But either way, but you're on someone you, you're on someone else's channel. I was I was on someone else's channel. So I don't know what we did on our channel. We usually uh, just use that as like a repository for uploading. Uh, mostly it's just me speaking um, either at an event or me taking questions at town halls so people can go back and get caught up or whatever. Um, so our, our channel was actually fairly, fairly mild, I thought. And then just boom, it just disappeared. Any kind boom, of notice? Yeah, my, uh, yeah, my campaign manager went to op went to upload a video from uh, a previous event the night before. And he asked me, hey, he said, hey, what's going on with the channel? And I opened up my email and there was the the screenshot that I posted that just said, hey, our I had violated the, the community standards and my account had been terminated. No, de no details. No, yeah, no details and no, no warnings. I've heard of the strike system. I'm not really familiar with it. Other people had asked me like, hey, did you get a warning or a strike? And I didn't get anything. Okay, so your campaign manager tried to contact them? Uh, yeah, what's, we, we, you know. We've reached out and we haven't gotten anything back. So nothing, I mean, that's, zero. Uh, just zero, yeah. Just kind of nuked from YouTube. So, like, I, like I said in the in the post, like, oh well, we have Rumble and there's other alternatives right now. Thankfully, so it's uh, it's not a showstopper by any means. Not a showstopper for you. Uh, it's, you know, it's just 
there are any number of possible reasons that this could have happened. And a glitch is obviously one of them. Right. But of course, you know, you, I'm sure you, and I know you saw because you, you liked uh, the excerpt that I tweeted from our conversation last summer talking about big tech. I guess it's kind of a facile question to ask you, gee, does this make you any more committed to looking into the, you know, big tech monopoly? But on the other hand, if we're having this discussion, we're live streaming it on Rumble, does that in fact make you think maybe it's not monopolistic or undue market control after all? I mean, I think it's really just a matter of time before they could go after, you know, the, the serving platform that Rumble and, and other other venues use. Like if, they, if they're doing this, they're going through this effort right now to purge us from social media channels. They've gone through it with banking and there's a bunch of other examples how people have gotten deplatformed or canceled. I mean, the next step is that they they do something to rumble like they did with Parler where it gets kicked off the server. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know if this really changed my mind. I guess this just gives me a little bit of personal experience. Like luckily I don't make my money off of YouTube like, like folks who I know do. So, I mean, really it just solidifies that these, these guys have entirely too much power, especially I'm just a congressional candidate in Washington state, but this is the new public square, you know? I mean, I'm really just a guy. Luckily I have other platforms and I've gotten some attention that uh, this didn't really slow me down. But had this happened, you know, six months ago before I had really been able to get my word out there, they kind of would have been able to snuff out my candidacy in the crib, so to speak. And that's you really just, think so? we don't, I mean, you we would don't, really we say don't want these technocrats to have that much control. You know, this is pretty ridiculous. Was YouTube that important in the early stages? Of, of your campaign? Yes, it was. Yeah, because it was a way for people to be able to see whatever event that I went to. We, Like I said, we would upload the questions and answers. People could go back. I could link to it on my other social media. So just to move beyond the whatever it is, two minutes and 20 second video you get on Twitter, people could then go to my channel and say, hey, who is this guy? I want to I hear more about him. Um, so yeah, I think had it had it happened earlier on, I, I think it would have been a much bigger deal, especially as far as getting media attention goes, because I, I think there's some media folks on our side that are looking through Rumble, but the media writ large is not really coming through Rumble. They're looking at, at YouTube. So I think earlier on, this definitely would have been an issue. Right. But it, so at this point, I mean, I, I, this, is it changing your media strategy, though? I mean, because because Rumble, Rumble, I've actually found is pretty good in terms yeah. of, um, uh, well, a lot of things. And I think there's some things that it can't compare to YouTube with. It's a lot to ask. But what I was pleasantly surprised to find was that they're really doing very well with SEO. And when you consider that Google owns YouTube, um, mm. I, I don't know if perhaps they're bending over backwards to make sure that there's no, you know, sort of a corporate favoritism that would open any doors up on, you know, in do you trust? Are you just shifting Rumble into the position YouTube was at before, or is there been an adjustment? Yes, there's been an adjustment. We're definitely moving all to, all to Rumble right now. And we were kind of heading in that direction anyways, because we were wary of something like this happening. And right now, especially as I'm gearing up for a primary, I do think there's a lot of folks that identify as conservative Republicans that are primarily looking at Rumble. Um, the goal now is for us to be able to still generate enough excitement and name recognition um, on the other platforms so that people that aren't necessarily from the traditional, you know, traditional or new right, however you want to look at it, that are just looking at Rumble, um, that can still get to hear my message. And so, you know, losing that YouTube channel was a 
was a hit in that in that regards. You know, going into the primary, I don't know how much it matters, but not having a YouTube channel going into it in general, I, I think it. I mean, it it sets the it sets the uh, the other side in a more favorable position because they're reaching a broader audience. And again, that's big tech sticking their thumbs on the scales. So tell me about the other side. Tell me as much you know about the you know primary information and who's who and who you're who you're up against and. Yeah. So running is Jamie Herrera Butler. She's a Republican, um, according to her title, who does not vote that way. So she she voted for president. She voted for the impeachment of President Trump. She volunteered to be the Democrat star witness in the sham impeachment trial. Uh, before that, she voted to certify the election on January 6th, despite all the discrepancies and all the issues with that vote. And then she also voted. Um, she has a slurry of, of really bad votes. Anytime we've needed her to stand up, she's failed. So most noticeably has been the border wall. She voted with the Democrats to stop construction of the border wall. She voted to save Obamacare as Trump was trying to repeal it. Um, she voted for pretty much every iteration of our endless wars we've had, including keeping leaving our troops in Syria as Trump was trying to get them out, leaving our troops in Afghanistan in the summer of 2020 as Trump was trying to get them out. So every time we need her to stand up, also out here in the Northwest, we are victims of uh, the BLM Antifa violence that's plagued Portland, Seattle. We're kind of a suburb of Portland. And as Antifa was marching into our district in the summer of 2020, assaulting our citizens, vandalizing our businesses, Jimmy Herrera Butler said nothing until it was time to cross the aisles and vote with the Democrats to stop Trump from being able to deploy the National Guard to quell some of that violence. So on, on paper, I'm sure you can look up her voting record and she'll get like an 80, 80 something percent you know, she votes with the with the R's. And that really just means she votes for tax cuts. She votes for the pork that comes back to the district. But if it's time to take a stand and really defend the, the hardworking people of the district, like she folds every single time. Well, I want to ask you a, a, a tricky question. Instead of all the softballs I've been lobbing at you. Um, a lot of the a lot of the discourse we see in social media, and I think it's not only in social media, but it's even in, in meat space and among other human beings um, is along the lines of why even bother fighting elections anymore? They are controlling mail-in ballots and they are, the other side, they are, you know, essentially making elections meaningless. Why do we even bother? So you're a smart guy and you have a little bit of insight into the world of intelligence as well. Why are you bothering? Is, is it, isn't it really just a foregone conclusion that that's a rhetorical question? I don't think it really is, but I'm not sure why you think it's not. So I totally understand the frustration, especially out here in Washington state. So Washington state has been doing the 2020 election now for about 15 years, unsolicited mail-out ballots and even Dominion tabulation machines. So I, I totally understand the frustration, but what I tell people all the time is that message of like, hey, it's all a rigged system. That is, that is the left, that is the regime, that's their messaging. The one, the, the two things the regime wants those of us on the right or those of us who are really just questioning what the establishment wants right now, there's two things they want us to do. They want us to think just that, that it's all a rigged game and to stop participating so that they can just run the tables. They don't even wanna make it so they have to rig these things, steal it, whatever you wanna say. If they can run the PSYOP that says that this is completely pointless, then they've won. And they also want people to get so frustrated with having their their grievances heard through the ballot box that they go and they do something stupid. They act out violently. Um, and that gives the national security state, which we've already seen, is turning its eye towards 
people in our camp. They're calling uh, the mothers and fathers who attend school board meetings domestic terrorists. We saw what happened with January 6th, the political prisoners with the narrative. There's an entire national security apparatus that wants to focus on us and is searching for targets. So when people get frustrated and say like, I'm not gonna vote, I don't wanna hear from candidates anymore. Uh, however, I'm still gonna stay vocal, I'm gonna complain and maybe I'm gonna go protest. And that leads down a very dark path, which I don't wanna see on the streets of my country for starters, but it's also playing right into the hands of the regime. If you wanna fight the regime right now, you have to do exactly what they don't want you to do. And that's stay incredibly politically activated, show up at every single protest, every single school board meeting, be very intimately familiar even with protests, all of Even protests, even street are. protests, Joe, that surprises me because my, my general approach has been in terms, I myself, I'm not a protesting man, okay? I'm an old old Jew, I stay away from, uh, I'm an avid endorsement. But let's talk about the rest of the normal people in this country. My feeling has been that outdoor protests, it's one thing to welcome Trump to a rally. Right. But anything where there's any risk of um, conflict, yeah. The state, the municipalities, the press are not are all adverse to our friends and to us. Yep. And I think you have to I mean, you have to really, really proceed carefully. Yeah. When it, anything in, you know, where there's a risk of infiltration, do you do you do you believe what I think most people on on the right not, I didn't say most Republicans, but most people on the right believe that, which is that there's a very, very high degree of infiltration on the right by feds and provocateurs, either working well, with I, the I feds or others. Yeah, especially uh, with the January 6th. And again, that ties back into like the left very much wants us to be disgruntled and then work our way into doing something stupid or really just saying something stupid and putting yourself in one of these, I don't have to tell you, you're a lawyer, putting yourselves into one of these traps where you have an FBI agent or somebody who's just reporting your communications to an FBI agent and you say something really dumb that can be construed as some sort of criminal conduct. conduct. Um, I, no, so I do, I definitely think there's infiltrators that we have to be concerned with. I wanna show you a really good tweet by my friend. I don't know if you had the pleasure of meeting him, um, Matt Couch. Hmm responding exactly to that argument. Okay, so Philip D says, no, we're not gonna get to 2024. If we don't fix 2020, it'll be a repeat, just like the Gavin Newsom recall, They're, it's hopeless. And Matt, who is a really dynamic guy, and you can find him also on Getter, where he's been very, really active. Um, stop saying it doesn't matter. It's not yeah, true. I agree. And you have to you have to have a little bit of a nuanced appreciation for what the the scam of the last election was about. Seven key metropolitan areas. It was brilliant. It was brilliant yeah. because for years, our side has been saying we can li listen. They've been saying it wrongly. It was those of us who've been involved in grassroots election monitoring or you know any kind of politics have known for a very long time that a very, very large amount of voter fraud takes place in blue states and especially metropolitan blue states. But the feeling was we're popular enough that our guys will overwhelm it. They sat down and did the math the other side and figured out that you can, instead of trying to cheat everywhere all the time, you can cheat. I'm not saying that happened, God forbid. I'm just saying that 
A person could cheat just focusing on a handful of key districts, which in turn could, could flip an entire state, which in turn yeah. flips the electoral college. That doesn't even, those are real problems and we need to, we need to, to work on them. And it's, and some places the work is happening. Some places the work is frustrating, but guys like you need to continue doing what you're doing. Now, if you win the nomination, this challenge to the Republican incumbent, what are your prospects for the general based on either internal polling or based on just your kind of spidey sense of how things go in your district? They're very strong. I, I think that the the real fight is going to be in the primary. It's going to be myself, America first versus your traditional well-funded country club, Republican to name only Republican. Our district is, we're R plus five or plus six with redistricting shaking out. We might might end up moving up into the R plus eight plus 10 category right now. Whoa, uh, so our the, the Democrats haven't put forward a serious candidate yet um, with real DNC backing. And I think with the way the district's looking, they may just save their money or they might just throw in someone who's not that serious. But this is a, this is a conservative district. People here know what the stakes are. We're right between Portland and Seattle. We've been harmed by the um, the way that the environmental industry has taken taken away our uh, our timber industry, the way that Antifa has marched into different districts. So people know what the stakes are, and I think that the primary is going to be the real fight. Um, I'm not as concerned about the uh, the general right now. So we spoke in June, I think, right, or was it the beginning of July? Yeah, I think around then. Yeah. How have things gone for your campaign since then, other than getting kicked off YouTube, which it should be you should be making lemonade out of this and i'm sure this is you know this is at least one drink of lemonade i hope yeah it certainly is now we've been making some lemonade off of it and it's 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 a badge of honor of sorts you know um so things have been going really well um when we spoke i hadn't received the nomination from or the uh, endorsement from president trump yet so i was endorsed by president trump endorsed ah. by general flynn yeah huge so obviously that was a a, a great honor and then maybe you want to you know re redouble my commitments every day to just be able to carry the banner of a America first from the district. So that was huge uh, endorsement from General Flynn, endorsement from the great Paul Gosar, Matt Gates. Matt Gates came out and did an event here in the district, a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. So, you know, things have just uh, continued to trend really positively. So we're just trying to keep the momentum and get the word out. That's the biggest hump we have to get over is really just name recognition for folks that are just living their lives and have their, their nose to the grindstone. And they know that there's a Republican out there and their name is Jamie Hura Butler, and maybe they're not Maybe they haven't been paying attention. We're just trying to get as much name recognition as we can, which ties into the YouTube thing because that just took away one more venue for us to get that name recognition. Is there, have you given up on trying to, you know, figure out what went wrong there? You know, what 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 uh, third rail of, of YouTube sensibility you stepped on? Or is it just something that's still, in, you know, behind the scenes yeah. entirely? We still have some appeals in and then some uh, some patriots have reached out who've been successful in this in this arena of getting accounts reestablished. And so they've been really nice and, and they're helping out, helping us out with their time and their skills to try and get an appeal into YouTube. So I'm glad there are people like that. On there. I'm so glad yeah. there are people like that because people think I'm one of those people because of these things. But they don't lawyers don't do a damn thing. You have to you have to have friends who trust you. I'm not that YouTube doesn't in particular mistrust Ron Coleman, but you have to have relationships and you have to know the system. And, you know, it's, 
I haven't had a lot of luck in, you know, in, 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 certainly with Twitter, I've had very little luck. Um, yeah. You know, one of the things that I've been talking about for a little while is this idea that there's, you know, besides there being no accountability for banning people, there isn't even a, a sense of regularity or predictability as to as to what what or why. And you know this this idea that well, if it's a private company, they can screw you over however they want to, is cute. Right. But we don't say it in any other area. Yeah. Especially in you know one of my bugaboos is that I think that this is a matter of consumer law. And I think you mm. and I did discuss this in our, in our you yeah. know, that basically you would not be allowed to say to, to, you know, to somebody that you let into your amusement park, you know, we're, we're going to remove you because we don't like the things you're saying. Well, it's an amusement yeah. park. Well, that's a place of public accommodation. Well, listen, the only reason that you could, that, that you could possibly make that argument is because of section 230. Section 230 is a carve out, an exception and that is now protecting gigantic multinational, multi-billion dollar corporations. Let me ask you, though, along those lines, I actually had tweeted a little thread yesterday about how I was looking at, uh, I'm an alumnus of two universities because I got a college degree and I got a law degree. And one of them is Northwestern where I went to law school. And I hardly ever have occasion to open up my alumni magazines because they're not about the world that I live in. But it, I'm glad to say I don't live in the world of brain cancer and I'd like to keep it that way. But there was an article in the Northwestern magazine about incredible strides that are made in uh, the field of um, brain cancer. And a lot of it, a lot of that work is being done by people at Northwestern, which is an outstanding university. But almost the entire magazine was identity politics or fundraising. They just ended a campaign they succeeded at raising six billion, billion, six billion dollars. And it was like a, a, I guess a five or six year campaign, but that's, that's mind boggling to me. I mean, now Princeton, I, I have written about it, the fact that I've stopped giving them money. I was never a big donor to Princeton. I was never a substantial donor to, you know, to, to any university, but Princeton's, you know, got tens and tens of billions of dollars in, in, the, in their kitty as well. Have you thought about at all this issue of taking another look at the nonprofit sector, which has become an incredible source of support, both moral and financial and otherwise for the left and for the Democratic Party in particular? If you were in Congress, would that be a, something that you would be interested in, you know, in, in addressing? Absolutely, because I mean, that's a huge way that I think going back to 20, the 2020 election, a lot of money was moved through nonprofits to do a lot of this election fortification, as they called it. But then in general, the way that a lot of these, uh, the tech oligarchs and really the oligarchy on Wall Street, these top 20, 25 billionaires who are already doing a form of really clever tax evasion with the way that they uh, make money off their off their assets and not their income, um, but then the way that they'll be able to dump money into nonprofits and then they're gonna they're gonna get a good tax break from all that. But then those nonprofits are gonna go out 
and act in a very partisan political way while they're scoring points along with this woke ideology that's more than likely being pumped as well through the tech oligarchs. So I, I think that's a huge part of what we have to do to take on Wall Street and then really to take on the way that these nonprofits have become their own sort of third rail. I think that's going to be, I think, I think that's going to be really, really key. I think, I think if it's something that, and, and the political, you know, the political resistance to that is going to be extraordinary, you know, because I mean, I don't think it's going to be the fact that people have this great loyalty to Harvard Law School where they all went. Um, I'm, I'm bitter. Okay, I'm bitter. I wouldn't have applied to Harvard Law School. because I knew I wasn't going to get in my mother. My mother made me okay. And at that age, you don't have to listen to what your mother tells you. Okay. But on the other hand, sometimes, you know, it was her 50 bucks. Okay. That's what it cost in those days. I did just fine in Northwestern. But it's something I do think that if if the American if if more people who aren't plugged into those elite networks really knew, because it's a little bit hard to get across, but if they knew how much money these guys are sitting on, and it's ironic how big they are and how big their the politics they like are on redistribution. But not on redistribution of their assets, redistribution of productive assets. Now, a lot of net productive schools like Northwestern and, and Princeton and you know the, the Stanford and MIT, they they do a lot of science and they add a lot of value to the economy. They own a lot of patents. Uh, you know, it's it, in many respects they act a lot like for-profit organizations, not the way we think of as you know a you know a a school, a school, merely a school. These are research institutes. These are, you know, the, these these are really influential and powerful organizations that are completely outside the taxing power of you know what what otherwise you know and the executives, what we otherwise would see as executives. Presidents of these schools make and sports coaches in some of these schools they make seven figures yeah. of money. Yeah, and the settlement law too, I think, is, is huge too because there's so many so many judges out there who, when these corporations get taken to court and they have to pay out a settlement, some of the agreement will be that they give money to charity organizations or they put it back into some of these universities. Coincidentally, like you said, it's universities that they all went to, and it just becomes this massive slush fund, another way to transfer wealth that should otherwise be in the economy, either in the form of taxes or it shouldn't be this massive uh, slush fund that they're all that they're all using. Like the, the case of the uh, the little statue of the little girl in front of the Wall Street bull, like where they, they, they got sued for all the discrimination, discriminatory practices against women, but as opposed to playing out to the planet plaintiffs, the agreement was that they were going to do some sort of tri woke tribute to women in the workplace and they built this statue, but they really shorted all the women that were actually aggrieved. I, I think I'm I think I'm sort of getting that right. I, I read about it a little while ago, but that's there's multiple incidents like this where they're able where, where woke incorporated, you know, the combination of nonprofits. The, the oligarchy, and then a lot of folks on the judiciary who've gotten put into these different positions are okay with settlements being made this way. It's just, there's so many different ways right now for our elites to really make, make money and then distribute money on the backs of the deplorables. Um, that's just a completely rigged system. So I, I think going after the, the permanent, permanent ruling class on every level, but in particular Wall Street is, is something we have to do. Listening to you for the last half hour, having spoken to you for 45 minutes or so earlier in the, in the, in the, in the spring, early summer, I'm looking for 
but crazy. I'm looking for what it is somebody who, I mean, I understand that we're viewed deplorables as you, you, you mm-hmm. know, people who have the point of view, I think I can't imagine you and I disagree on too many issues. What do you think, if you were a Democrat running against Joe Kent, what would be the, what would be the position that you take that's, like, have you, have you, and this to me is also part of the YouTube calculus. Did you suggest anything screwy about vaccines? About the sacrament of, of, of our church of high government? Yeah, I've expressed skepticism about the vaccines, but I think it's all, it's all fairly, I don't know, I don't think I have a unique take on the vaccines other than like, hey, why are they pushing these things so heavily? And and maybe people shouldn't be mandated uh, as to which vaccines they get. I'm, I'm pretty strong on that. I don't think the government should be able to compel you to take a vaccine. And most certainly the president of the United States shouldn't be pressuring private entities to pressure their employees to take vaccines. Um, I, I believe it's a it's a means of control. I guess that's maybe the craziest take that I have that, hey, if you want if you want to control a populace, you need that one per, that one piece of data that says, will you or will you not submit? And the vaccine gives a really good binary data point to put right in people's face and say, yes or no, are you going to do it? And then there, from there, the government gets really critical data as to who will comply and who won't. That's that seems to me to be the direction this is heading. So I guess that's my that's a, my that's a very take. that's a okay. Well, you know what? Your crazy take is very very fascinating because it you it's an intriguing point that you point out that that all the litmus tests there are always all these litmus tests and the 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 thing whatever the thing is. The, I just saw recently another good name for it, the medical corporate establishment, something like that. Whatever the thing is, has lighted upon this idea that health, are you anti-health? Are you pro-death? Right. And, you know, how can you, know, how can you argue with that, right? Yeah. There is, a, you know, and that's why messaging is so important. And that's why having the media carrying water for you is so important because they frame the issues for still so many people. Now yes. you're on the campaign trail, you're meeting people all the time. How many, I mean, would you say that, that there, would you agree with me? Cause I, I think it is the case that the corporate media is essentially speaking to preaching to its own choir at this point. They're not changing any minds. Yeah. I think they're just speaking to blue checks on Twitter and hoping that because they have control of like the, the media environment, that it will eventually saturate and penetrate in the way that it used to. I, I think they've gotten ahead of their skis. I think 10 years ago, that was definitely the case where they ran the tables between the newspapers and then what was gotten out there. Ahead of the their internet. skis. Is, is that a falling on your face reference? Is that, is that what you're talking about? Because if I had fallen in the snow, I don't know. I think I, I don't know. I just my thing about skiing, Joe, is always I figured you are ready at the bottom before you start skiing. And then yeah. you go all the way up to the top. You were at the bottom before. Why do you have to go and take all that risk just to get back to the bottom? But maybe that's, that's just how an avid endorsement sees things. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you think yeah. they're getting you actually think that they're that they're a little bit. And it's a great metaphor because I get the idea that, that they're they're losing kind of control of the yeah. momentum that they themselves have built up. 
And that's why I think they're so desperate right now for actual control, because they're not trying to win or even take control of the information idea space, because that's moving too fast right now. Like you kill YouTube, we got Rumble. This is more dynamic. And people are really starting to see through some of the lies, especially when we have this pandemic that was supposed to scare everybody. We caught Fauci and lie after lie after lie. What's going on with the schools? And then now these mandates where people are walking out, losing their jobs. So I think a lot of their uh, narrative is really collapsing on itself. But that's why we see them moving so heavily towards control. And so I, I think that we're doing, I think we're doing well in the information space. That's why I think that that's why I'm, I heavily advocate people continuing to stay engaged. Don't take the bait, don't take the black pill, stay active in this because that's what the other side doesn't want. That's why they're moving so heavily towards actual physical control that kind of buys back into how I feel about the vaccine. Right now, the regime just wants to know like, is this guy going to be a problem or is he not? Like, will you take the vaccine or will you not? Like, that's we're kind of back to like way more raw power politics, which I think is is pretty frightening in the United States of America. I, I hate to say that we're at that point because I've seen that overseas, but that's that's where things are. But I believe that they're ahead of their skis with the narrative and with control of the information flow. I think you're right, and I think you you also you bring up a couple of really great points. One of them is you know you mentioned the school boards. People are beginning to see not only that they've perhaps been lied to or misled by the press for a very long time. But what's been going on in these school boards? Yeah. Right. How are they spending our money? What are they, what are they teaching our kids? Who's making these decisions? Right. Yeah. And then doctors, the medical establishment, the entire one thing I realized for a long time was that people kept saying, well, ask your doctor, ask your doctor. I love my doctor. My doctor, has been a, a personal friend of mine since we were in summer camp together in the in the early 70s. Okay, I mean, we've been, and he's a great doctor. But what I see about doctors such as he, such as, such as he, is that they're not really drilling down on these questions as a general rule. They're following a consensus, or at least a consensus of institutions and they're not necessarily the best source of information about whether or not, I mean, I, I had a, I once went to, I went to a dermatologist who told me that I should get vaccinated. I didn't ask him and ask him. And certainly if anyone's going to complain about Rand Paul, merely being an ophthalmologist, you know, cross-examining Dr. Fauci. Yeah. I think dermatologists can, you know, can also, you know, hey, what's that guy now? Yeah, he might. No, he don't. He look, he knows more than me, and he knows sure. more than you. Yeah, but but is he really? But is he applying his tools as a physician to yeah. really inquire? Because the I mean, the, the silence on this issue, and this is something we talk about all the time in our house, because it is a very intense, policy-oriented household. The silence and diversion around the issue of natural immunity is yeah. mind boggling. It's, and why aren't, doc, why aren't all the doctors in the world who learned this most basic tenet of, of what a vaccination is and, and what immunity means? Why aren't we hearing from all of them as opposed to merely some of them? And some of them we do hear from are the, the ones getting kicked off. No, it, it, because the the control of the narrative, they've just said, hey, if you if you're against what we're saying, then you're definitely going to be labeled a bad doctor, but probably even a bad person because you just don't care. They've taken the science completely and totally out of it and gone with this whole 
control, bow down to the regime. But I, I think in general, Americans are seeing institutions crumble in a way that we haven't seen prior to um, the current time that we're in right now. So me, like serving 20 plus years in the military, I remember early phases of the Iraq war and I was like a true believer. And I thought, surely somebody knows, this seems like it's really messed up right now, but there's somebody in the Pentagon who's like a general who's way smarter than little me who's got a plan and it's all gonna make sense at some point. And I think you can, and obviously we all know the way that- What kind out. of moments are you talking about? Like what kind of experiences was it that made you have that internal dialogue? Yeah, so I was actually over in Iraq when we demobilized the, the Ba'ath Party and we basically told all of them they were fired. So Ba'ath Party is the guys that work for Saddam, which was everybody in Iraq who knew how to run civil society, the security forces, take out the trash, turn on the lights, you name it, they were all in the Ba'ath Party. Um, that was like Iraq 101 um, that I knew very well. And I was one of the groups that was putting as a green rare jobs to train foreign forces. So I was working, we were starting the Iraqi army. And so we had just gotten all these former anti-Saddam militias. And some of them had actually been in the Ba'ath Party as part of the resistance. And then the guys sitting in Baghdad, the generals and, and the notorious Paul Bremer said, hey, we're going to issue this order. They called it the uh, Coalitional Provisional Authority uh, Order Number One. And that basically fired everybody in the Ba'ath Party. It fired like 90% of the Sunnis in the country. And that was really bad advice they got from one dissident group in particular. So me at the ground level, dealing with Iraqis every day, going out either fighting or having to train, I was like, this is, this is terrible. And I was like an E5, a Sergeant Green Beret. But I was like, yeah, but I'm just a I'm just a Sergeant Green Beret, man. Like, I'm just going to do my job. I'm going to train these guys. There's someone who knows better. And then, but, but I did realize at the time, no one came and asked us, the, the guys that were on the ground, hey, what do you guys think about this? What are you seeing? Because no one at the time was more deep in the, I'd say the Iraqi populace than the frontline soldiers, in particular, special forces guys. Nobody came and asked us. Nobody came and asked my immediate supervisor who was like a captain. And you don't mean, you you, know, you're not, and, when you say asked us, you don't mean, chain of command should have been turned on its head. You're, you're saying, do you want human intelligence? Exactly. You want to understand. So, you know, because this was a problem that, you know, talk about, this was the dispute between Eisenhower and Patton. Mm -hmm. Patton says, you're telling me to fire everyone who knows how to turn on a water main because any yeah. high official in any German town, That's right. and Eisenhower says, look, he didn't say it, but the message that came clear was denazification is simply the priority. And I really don't care, frankly, after what Germany has done starting this war, if they have to go through some hard times for a while without some of their talent, because Nazis are simply not acceptable. Now, that was that that was a clear political and policy choice that that was made and, and arguably had to be made. Patton didn't get it, and he had ended up having to find something else to do with himself. On the other hand, the Bath Party is a much more subtle issue. It's not like being a Nazi. I mean, one thing we found in about the Middle East and in, in, in Asia Minor is that today's militia head that you are supplying arms to is tomorrow's Al-Qaeda. Right. It's a lot of moving parts. Maybe they should be yeah. listening a little bit more to the to, to the rank and file. Yeah, no, that, that was exactly it. And that was a, you know, complete, in subsequent tours, as, as the, the war went on, I just realized that the top, the establishment wasn't listening. They had their agenda. That was clear cut, more troops, more resources, just to keep this whole thing going, this narrative that we had built this Iraqi government. And really what we said at the bottom, 
didn't matter. And so for me, that was watching that that institution really, really collapse and I guess just disappoint me. Well, we've now we've got a guy like General Milley in charge, right? So I mean, now at least we know that he is he is a guy who's in touch with the rank and file like any like no one ever before, right? Yeah, all the way from, you know, whatever great woke issues going on all the way to what the uh, the generals of the PLA in China want to hear. So, I mean, it's I mean, Millie's a classic example of just a political general. He knew what the agenda was. Biden came in. He said, day one, I want to know who who's who's against me. So start pumping the CRT, have this extremist stand down. Day and one. Was like, I, th I'm all in. I think day minus 30. He's already calling people up. He's, he's sitting. But what the hell is he doing? Even talking to, to Nancy Pelosi. I understand there are members of Congress, there are legitimate channels, but this was, this is craziness. But listen, what do, what do I know? Joe, great to have you on. You're the first person ever to appear twice on the Coleman Nation podcast. That definitely makes up for getting banned from, from YouTube, but I hope that you do Absolutely. get back onto YouTube as soon as possible. And when you do, we'll be trumpeting the news and I won't make you come on and explain it again. I'm sure it's a glitch, a glitch. I'm sure, I'm sure it's just a mistake, just a clerical error. It, it, it just the kind that only happened to Republicans. Right. Best of luck. Everybody support Joe Kent. He's the man. Good talking to you. Yep. Take care. Thank you very much. Really appreciate so it. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.